This is a Ranieri & Co. and Headline Productions podcast. The purpose and the meaning of an Olympic gold medal was just, it meant the world to me. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I can do one more. But then if you switch your mind and say, no, I can, I can, then most of the time you can. At the end of the day in elite sport, I think everyone that's left is talented. We've been raised on the mantra that if we just keep trying, if we just want something badly enough, eventually we'll succeed. And while talent is an obvious starting point, sports around the world are littered with stories that prove talent itself is simply not enough. So what makes some kids go further and strive to become elite athletes? Is it all in the family, a genetic legacy? Is it your classic parent or coach who pushes their kids and designs their pathway to success? Or maybe it's something less obvious, something hidden in the psychology of family dynamics. This is a Long Haul, and I'm Emma Murray. I have just arrived at the Oakley Recreation Centre, which is half an hour out of the heart of Melbourne. It looks like they've dumped this brand new centre right in an industrial estate. Last time I was in a gymnastics centre, I was working with Romy Brown, an Australian gymnast who was preparing for the Olympics, and her coach, John Hart. When I used to work with Romy and John, being in the gym was um, one of my most favourite things because these athletes are elite and the things they do are mind-boggling. Watching them push through the fatigue and do so with so little fanfare and so little conversation or complaining, I find really fascinating. My name's John Hart, or it's actually Jonathan Hart, if you want to, my mum would be happier with that. I'm a, a gymnastic, an elite gymnastics coach, if you like, although I don't necessarily see myself any different to any other coach. Um, I'm just trying to get the best out of all the athletes. I uh, have coached athletes to the last four Olympic Games. You know, when I was 10 years old, if you asked me what I wanted to do, I wanted to be a gym coach. I was, I was a talented gymnast and did okay, but when I got to high school, my parents said, no, you're not doing gym anymore. As a 16-year-old, I played in my first national under-21 netball team. I trained with the Australian Institute of Sport, but like John, reality got in my way. After a series of injuries and subtle hints from my parents, I went into a variety of careers until I found myself coaching and then eventually working in psychotherapy with elite athletes. Later in this episode, we're going to talk to one of Australia's most famous elite athletes, Grant Hackett. Grant's been interviewed countless times about what happened after he left the sport. We're going to find out more about what gave him that initial drive to become one of the world's best Olympians. 
Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. From Rainieri and Co. and Headline Productions, this is a long haul, and I'm Emma Murray. Hi, quality body, let's bounce it. Gymnastics is a beast of a sport. It's arguably one of the most physically demanding and technically specific sports out there. These athletes are very much children when they start because in a sport that has so much technical precision, the younger you start, the better you get. Romy and Mila are two of Australia's most promising young gymnasts. They're also sisters. Romy is 19 and devastatingly missed out on the Tokyo Olympics due to a foot injury. Being only 14, Mila was too young, but they both now have Paris 2024 firmly in their sights. I start here talking to Mila. Why don't you finish on a straight layout? Let's just see what it's like. So you're good at the floor, and the floor's the one with the music, and it's a bit of dance, and it's a bit of... And I've heard... Um, some of your coaches say that you are a great performer. Um, what does it feel like to do a great routine? It feels so good. I know it's just like you feel proud of yourself and you feel like you've not let anyone down. Do you know when I work with other athletes, so if I work with AFL players, for instance, if I ask what's their greatest fear when they're competing, they actually don't say it's making a mistake or losing. They actually say that their biggest fear is letting their teammates down. Yeah. Does that feeling drive you to work harder? Yeah. Gym is a bit more of an individual sport. I feel like it's more I don't want to let my coaches down and myself down. I know what I can do, so I want to prove to everybody that I can do it. How did you feel watching the Tokyo Olympics and the gymnasts there? I really like what Simone did everybody see that there's definitely a mental side to gymnastics it can bring you down more than physical pain sometimes did you feel like finally someone's telling it how it is yeah because that kind of thing actually happens a lot has it happened to you before yeah oh it's it's the worst feeling it's like you're in the air and it just feels like you're stuck and you don't know where the floor is and it's just a whole bunch of colors spinning around you and You're just waiting for the ground to come, but you don't know what's going to hit the ground first. It could be your feet or your back or your head. That must be terrifying. It's so scary. And then you overthink everything, so then it's, I don't know where to put my arm. And then you don't put your arm anywhere and you're stuck. And how do you get through that? You've got to really go back to the start and work all the steps up to it. Wow. As I watch the girls on the gym floor, it's almost disconcerting how quiet they are as they go about repeating their routines over and over again. Their talent is undeniable, 
They both have a mixture of coordination and strength that makes them ideal gymnasts. But underneath that raw ability, there's a drive, a focus that seems to defy the physical difficulty of their daily training. Sometimes, like when you can't go anymore, just start crying because everything is hurting. But I think sometimes it's almost better because then you can reset, try again. Hopefully it will be better. What do the coaches say to you when you're crying from fatigue? They usually say, we can just leave that skill if it's too hard or come back to it later. You don't feel like when you're crying, you have to just dig in and keep going. Yeah. Sometimes though, you want to do that for yourself. Like you want to keep going with the skill that you're doing. Mm-hmm. But sometimes if it's really too much, just come back to it at the end. I don't understand that. I don't understand that I'm doing a skill that's so hard physically and mentally that I'm crying. I don't understand that feeling of wanting to keep doing it. (laughs) Can you explain that? It's like, I don't want to just leave it that I haven't, I haven't been able to make it better or I haven't even been able to achieve it today. Because I feel like going home you have such a good feeling if you know that you pushed through and you were able to do it. And just, I feel like when I go home and I haven't done it, and I'm a bit disappointed that I just left it and gave up. Okay, it's not too bad. It's not bad. It's a little bit of chest pain now. Go and finish, go, go to stop. You have elite athletes that are these crazy schedules and sacrifices and hard work and self-driven they're kids Mm. and so you do you feel like you're playing that role of coach but also parent and i I think so you like like you talk to the kids also we spend more time with you than we do with our own family you know it's it's the 33 hours of training let alone the rest of it before and after and you know like i know i know how little i get to see my kids when i get home because i'm here with these guys and it's the same for their family. They, they get home and they've got homework to do and go to bed and, you know. And the thing that amazes me is watching them in the gym, there's not a lot of um, downtime. Every moment of training requires a level of focus. And well, and, and if you're not focused, you're going to land and hurt, like, or not land and hurt yourself. So, yeah, it does. And so the exhaustion... Um, I would imagine from just focusing that much is as much as a physical burden on their body. Especially when we go into like a major comp, the amount of thinking and focusing and everything that they're doing is having an effect on, you know, their energy and, and, and just to make sure we're managing their training loads, you know, taking that into consideration, I guess. And do you feel that there's a pressure from coaches and your family, Romy, your mum and dad, to keep pushing through and keep working hard? Or do you think the pressure comes from you inside? I definitely think it comes from me. I think I pressure myself the most to do everything. Have you seen other girls that were gymnasts who didn't have that internal drive? If they don't want to be there, they're not going to last because It's too hard if you don't want to be there. And what do you see in other gymnasts that make you go, yeah, you're going to be successful? Well, that self-drive and wanting to make it better and wanting to keep going until 
you make it. Do you see that in Romy? Yeah. Yeah. Do you try and copy that? Yeah. Yeah. When you look at her, do you think she has that more than other gymnasts? Yeah. She wants it a lot, and I think that's important. Talking to Mila and Romy, it's obvious they're both fully aware of the challenges that lie ahead of them. While Australian gymnasts have tasted success on the global stage, the reality is we're not the gymnastics juggernauts of the USA, Russia or China. While the girls have their sights set on the Paris Olympics, it's also obvious that they are deeply driven by something much more personal. Here's Romy. If you give it 100%, no matter what the outcome is, you'll know that you couldn't have done anything more. So then at least you'll feel like you've done everything you can, even if you don't get the outcome that you want. Do you remember when you decided, I want to be the best at gymnastics? It would be a couple of years after I started and started actually competing, I think, when there was actually a purpose to training and being good and trying to get better. Were you winning competitions then? Not always. Like, I'd come in top three, so I think that was also drove my training and trying to get better. Was it trying to beat the other girls or trying to be the best that you could be that really drove you? I think trying to be the best that I could be. So I've watched you train a number of times and I can, can see there's times where you are exhausted and you're doing these incredible tricks and difficult um, skills and your coach is saying one more, one more. What's going through your head at that moment? Sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I can do one more. But then if you switch your mind and say, no, I can, I can, then... Most of the time you can. Is there ever a time where you've gone, no, I'm not doing one more? I don't think so. (laughs) Really? If someone says one more, you'll just do one more? Yeah. Even if every part of your body is saying, I can't do one more? Yeah. Why do you think you are able to do that when most people are not able to do that? Well, I think that it shows like when it's getting too hard, you'll still be able to do it. Like I've practiced it when I'm at my most tired, so it means I can do it whenever I want. I don't have to feel super great to do the skill. And when you nail that skill, how good does that feel? Yeah, it feels so good. (laughs) Your chances of being an elite athlete, 1.2 times are uh, if you have older siblings. Mark Williams has spent his academic career studying how elite athletes are made. In his latest book, The Best, Mark explores how a range of social and cultural factors can have an impact on your chance of becoming elite. One of them is being a younger sibling. The older siblings introduce the younger sibling into sport at an earlier age and also provide an element of guidance and support. They can learn from their mistakes Uh, learn from the experiences that both the older siblings and the parents have had. And they obviously provide a very big source of competition as well. It doesn't mean, of course, that if you're an older sibling, you won't uh, become an elite athlete. And there are lots of elite athletes out there who are older siblings. It's just that your chances of becoming an elite athlete are higher if if you do have older siblings. The fact that younger siblings learn from their older siblings and generally get better quicker makes sense. Unless you're Romy, of course. For her, the motivation to improve and reach her goals 
is also driven by a desire to stay ahead of her sister. Got to try to keep being better. <laughs> Have you competed against each other yet? Not yet. I think next year, is it? Or no, year, year after, after, when we're in senior together. Yeah. Do you think about that at all? Sometimes. Yeah? It'll be weird to compete against each other. Yeah. No one wants to be beaten by their little no. sister, do they, <laughs> When I look at Romy and Mila, I can see this competitiveness drives them both. But I can also see a supportiveness and love that I think will be valuable as they continue on. Whether they reach the highest level or not, the harsh reality is, eventually one of them will end up being better. It's the nature of gold, silver and bronze. I asked Mark what other factors are important in giving kids that initial spark. Clearly the role of parents and significant others, such as guardians, friends, siblings, are very important. Uh, other things, such as perhaps socioeconomic background, I mean, some sports are more costly to engage in than others. Skiing, golf, tennis, for instance, are probably more expensive than soccer or basketball or, or, or maybe even cricket. And um, that helps as well. And I guess even the geography, the climate, the landscape is more or less conducive to, to some sports more than others. There's um, a great amount of research now across the globe, across different sports, that suggests that... Um, there is a tendency for scouts and coaches to select boys and girls that are born in the first quarter of the selection year, uh, thus favouring children that are bigger and stronger physically and physiologically. Now, there are some sports, of course, where you get the reverse pattern, like gymnastics, uh, trampolining, where it's actually advantageous to be born in the last quarter. So being small is an advantage in some sports, but certainly in in many sports, being big has its advantages early on. But uh, there is evidence also that some of those advantages do dissipate over time because there's something actually called the underdog effect. And what the underdog effect suggests is that certainly in some sports, whilst your chances of being uh, selected into an elite training academy at an early age are much higher if you're born in the first quarter, your chances of actually reaching the elite level are much higher if you're born in the last quarter of the year. And maybe the argument here is that those kids don't have the advantage of physical size early in development. And consequently, they have to focus on developing technical, tactical uh, skills, psychological skills. And that uh, later on, post-puberty, when the physical size issue dissipates, then those born later in the year still have the advantages uh, on perhaps things that really matter. What enables you to spot that talent in a gymnast? I don't know. I think it's a bit of experience and just seeing, like you, you see kids come through. Like I remember years ago, you know, this little six-year-old girl walked into our, our gym at six and, and, you know, I could just see her natural coordination and strength and stuff straight away that as a six-year-old, we put her in a group with 10-year-olds. What happened to her? She did really well as a junior and then... She actually, when she was 16 was the year for Olympics for her, she grew a lot. Growing tall in our sport, it does affect things. Like if you look at a lot of the athletes who are, you know, Simone Biles is like less than five foot tall. Mm. And and you don't see it on TV. You look at the TV and they just look like normal sized people, but mm. it's because they're all short. So all of a sudden you now look and go, okay, for a, a gymnast to make it to the top, they've got to have talent. 
They've got to have hard work and they also have to have just the right physical makeup, whether yeah. that's height, strength. Yeah, it does It does play a lot into it, the the genetics. And it used to be that big thing, right? The, the gymnasts were 14 and, and then by the time they were 16, they were all retired and moved on. In 2016, the average age in gymnastics at the Olympics moved to 21. This year, I believe it was up around 24 or 25. Wow. So it's really changed. It takes you a certain amount of time to learn all your skills and now it's but the skills have got bigger and bigger so it takes a little bit more time do you talk to the parents as their kids move up into the elite program that this is what's required this is what is going to be hard this is you know what it's going to take especially you know we often we can we come across parents that want it more than the kid they've had some regrets because in their sporting career they didn't want it and then their kids come along and tell, is talented or, or, you know, they didn't work hard enough and they could have, they missed out on a, a really good opportunity. Plenty of times we've had parents come to us and say, you know, oh, my daughter's tough, you know, and, and we're strict at home and you can push her and, you know, don't know what worried about all that stuff. And that's okay for them to say, but it's not them that's doing it. It's not them that's being pushed, it's the kid. And is the kid happy with that? If a kid doesn't want it bad enough, that's okay. After this quick break, we'll hear about the role Romy and Mila's parents played and also from Olympic legend Grant Hackett. From the very start, we were pretty concerned about them missing school, just friends, just home life. And so we just kept, I kept saying, this is absolutely ridiculous. Romy and Mila's parents didn't know much about gymnastics before they signed Romy up to a class. If anything, they were resistant about their kids getting too involved in such an intensive sport. We were introduced to a family from Waverley and they said to bring Romy. And then when we did, I mean, the rest is history a bit, that we were committed then and, and Romy just loved it. She was getting good skills quickly and, and they all loved her. And I think that drove her a bit too, was... They just loved her in there. And we're all like a bit dumb by, but all the um, like tiger parents in the foyer are going, oh, what's next? Is she going to this great? We're going like, what are you talking about? We've never woken them up in the morning. We've never, ever had to make up to the coach or anything. Gym is, you know, it's a very expensive sport. You know, if you're doing 35 hours a week, three or four coaches, it's probably around the same as private school fees, you know, around that twenty dollars $25,000, especially if they're competing overseas. So th- th- there used to be a bit more funding in Gymnastics Australia, um, but, you know, with them not doing very well at the last couple of Olympic cycles, those funds dry up. I suppose I see this as more... Hopefully, I'm investing in their life skills that they're going to learn and, and be able to you know, hopefully continue you know, being successful at whatever they do. Gabby and Matt's approach is refreshing, especially considering how much time, effort and money the pursuit of gymnastic greatness takes. For me, one thing I've learned through these interviews is that while the desire to become elite does need to be supported by the parents, primarily... It has to be driven by the kids. When you're practicing at a very high level, then the risk of failure is high. So that ability to be able to deal with failure, be able to find a solution for it yourself where possible as an athlete, is an important part of the development process. So clearly if the parents are too hands-on 
and solve too many of the children's problems, then uh, I think ultimately we'll end up stifling their growth. So why do you think they do it? Like they're not getting paid, I'm presuming. Um, <laughs> they wish. <laughs> and, you know, an Olympic medal is um, a stretch for a lot of these athletes. Yeah. Well, it's a stretch for any yeah, athlete in yeah. any sport. It's ridiculous. But what makes them do it? I know they love it. Like it is fun flying through the air and, you know, it's it's like I, I'm sure there's that adrenaline rush as well. Um, you know, I, I you, not the right word, but it's like an addiction, I guess. Like it is just damn good fun. I think and, that's a good word, yeah. actually. There would have to be some level of addiction. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what it is because I do, I really like pushing myself so hard that I just feel like I have given it everything that I have and that I'm tired and like I just feel like I've done something. I love the feeling of achieving new skills and I love the feeling of achieving all your goals. I guess you, you find that one thing that you want to work for and, and maybe that's why elite athletes too afterwards, you know, they're so invested in their sport and achieving whatever it is that their goal in, in their sport that they come out at the other end, they've finally achieved it or haven't achieved it and they're, you know, they're, they're retiring and, they're, and or, you know, that, that journey's over and it's like, well, where's... You know, that goal's gone that they'd worked so hard for. They've achieved that goal and, and now what do I do with my life? When you're told to be a gladiator the whole time and to fight and to overcome every single piece of adversity, then all of a sudden you go through a divorce where you miss, you know, you're not seeing your kids and all the things that matter to you more than anything in your world through that period of life. The whole gladiator approach does not work. Grant Hackett's tumultuous retirement from competitive swimming has been widely reported on. Those bunch of emotions that you need to, to process, you can't just bury those, but that's what you do as an athlete because when you're overcoming adversity, you're like, how do I put it behind me so I then can focus on the goal? Grant is now a successful CEO in corporate Australia talking to him, it became really clear that the mentality and focus required to become an elite athlete didn't help Grant deal with the emotional turmoil of his post-Olympic success. Our episode on retirement explores this idea further, but for now, we work our way back to the origin story of one of Australia's most elite athletes. So my childhood was, was very, very normal. So mum loved tennis. She was a hairdresser. Dad, you know, he played A-grade football and um, he was a policeman. He was a policeman for 41 years. Um, at that particular point in time, he was in the CIB. So he was a detective and we got moved around quite a bit. So I was born on the Gold Coast, went up to Sunshine Coast for a while. We then moved up to North Queensland, up to Innisfail. And that's when we got into more aquatic sports, I guess you could say. Mum and dad didn't even think of swimming or things like surf lifesaving, but decided to join the local surf lifesaving club just to get into the community a little bit more and it all started with my brother who was six and a half years older than me 
everything he touched in sport turned to gold. He was way more talented than me. You know, he could run 11.2 in high school for 100 meters. You wow. know, um, did the Uncle Toby Super Series for eight years. Was Kieran Perkins's number one rival for many years when they were younger. They finished first and second, everything from state to nationals. So I just admired everything he was doing. And I was kind of just, you know, I was a little chubby kid and I was always very tall and big for my age. I'm six foot six. But I was never kind of seen as this athletic prowess. I was never seen as competitive either. And it probably wasn't until the age of five that my mum will tell a story where she first saw that competitive nature in me. It was kind of all about my brother and I was just doing what he did. <laughs> and we got to do this race with a bunch of other five-year-old kids at that, you know, the Innisfail pool. It was called the Red Devil Swimming Club. And um, I touched the wall. I won by a mile, apparently. I can't remember any of this, by the way. And I yelled out when I touched the wall. I was like, did I win? <laughs> and my mum kind of faded into the bushes. She goes, I was so embarrassed. I couldn't believe you screamed that out. Like the whole pool heard it. And, um, and she goes, that's the first time that I realized that maybe you are quite competitive. And we thought we, she goes, I would have even called you docile at that age. Like you just didn't seem to care about, you know, anything too much, you know, kind of just got on with your day. You know, we moved back down to the Gold Coast because my dad got transferred again for his job and, um, you know, joined uh, Miami Swimming Club where I ended up swimming for, you know, the next sort of 21, 22 years of my life. And if you go back to you as a 13-year-old, what made you so great? Why did you end up where you ended up? I think when I was in Nippers, in Surface Paradise Surf Lifesaving Club, this was probably a big part of where my competitiveness also grew outside of the, the family was we had this amazing age group. We had a guy named David Rastovich who could have been the next Kelly Slater, who's world junior surfing champion. So just a, a freakish athlete. We had Trent Noble who went on to play for St Kilda and the Brisbane Lions. Um, we had uh, Courtney Atkinson who went and present, you know, represented Australia at two Olympics for triathlon. Like it was just amazing at this one club, we had all these super competitive people that ended up becoming elite in different sports, but we were all just so competitive. So I think I got a lot of like this sort of my base competitiveness from being in those kind of 10 to 13 years and being a part of that group of people. I think they really taught me so much about being competitive against people that want it just as bad as you. And that kind of underpinned everything for me. But for me, it was a real question of sports because I played rugby league at the time too. So I was playing rugby. I was doing surf life saving, having quite a bit of success there and also swimming. And it was kind of that this moment when I was 13 in 1993 when um, Juan Antonio Samaranch ran out, you know, read out Sydney. And of course, we got the Olympics. And so for me, I was like, wow, felt like I really want to win an Olympic gold medal. I really wanted that at that age. And I just put this simple, practical steps in place. And that was clear goals. A person that had trotted that path before, how did they trod those steps? Okay, they seem like pretty good milestones for me to emulate or, or beat. And that was that. But the purpose and the meaning of an Olympic gold medal was just, it meant the world to me. I remember back in 1993 being with my parents in their living room, my father a former competitive swimmer. That moment, for those of us who were old enough to remember it, was iconic. For younger generations today, it's probably just a cliched meme. But for Grant, his elation had a different purpose. For him, in that moment, a flame was lit. He knew that he now had a very clear timeline to get to the top of his chosen sport. And what bigger stage than an Olympic Games in your own country? Everything had been building to this point. 
his role models, his now innate competitiveness, a growing talent and a willingness to do whatever it took. Up at quarter to five, um, you know, in the, in the water at 5.30 a.m. sharp, always on the dot, and then we'd do seven to eight kilometres. Um, we would then, you know, have something, you know, protein shake or whatever, 90 minutes then in the gym with the strength and conditioning coach. Um, sometimes, you know, if I was school, that would finish a little bit earlier, then I'd be straight to school. And then go back to the pool at 3.30, two hours sort of pre-workout routine, get in the pool at 4.15, usually finish at about 6.45, 7 p.m., sometimes a little bit later. Then we do kind of a 10 to 20 minute course session afterwards, go home again, another truckload of food, six days a week. Um, Sundays off or often a two to three K recovery session. 49 weeks of the year, we're either competing or, or training. So I'd get three weeks off. So that was my life for probably 15 to 16 years. It was, it was challenging. That's and the, an understatement. I mean, you, yeah. you describe that day and we can sit there and go, wow, that's a hectic day. Mm. That's full on. But 15, 16 years of that, mm. what did you miss out on? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I get that question quite a bit. And I used the word sacrifice before, but it's, it's not even a sacrifice. I, I missed out on nothing. I gained everything through doing that. That's actually how I feel about it. People think, oh... You know, did you miss out when, you know, teenagers were becoming scallywags and maybe trying alcohol when they were in year 12 or something that was a little bit naughty that you shouldn't be doing? And I never did any of that stuff. But I had the best time with my mates in high school and I didn't feel like I missed out on anything. And it was funny because they knew I was so serious about my sport and doing really well. They, they respected me for that and almost admired it. So I felt like I was kind of a bit of a leader amongst my peers. I got to experience so much more because of what I invested into life. So... Yeah, so I absolutely regret nothing of those years and I actually missed out on nothing. I only gained. Mira and Romy had a similar response when I asked them what they'd missed out on. They felt like other kids were missing out on what they were doing, not the other way around. I asked Grant what he thought made someone go from a talented athlete to someone willing to dedicate their youth to an Olympic dream. I think it's like this sort of, you know, boiling the frog, right? Like if you just jumped in the hot water, you'd bounce straight out. But sitting in there and just slowly heating up over time, you're not going to jump straight out, right? I remember when I was 14 and, and getting my first national record. Um, and it was such a big deal in the household. You got a national record. It got laminated, the certificate and everything and put up on the wall. I think four years later, there was like over 60 sitting on the wall. And mum goes, I'm tearing these bloody things down. They look ridiculous. <laughs> There's a lot of luck involved. There's a lot of things that, as an elite athlete, we don't have any control over. Things like who our parents are, when we're born, where we're born, you know, access to facilities and coaches uh, are all things that have a strong element of serendipity about them. Like anything in life, luck and serendipity can play a big role in defining what path you go down. Having access to a coach that can take you to that next level is one aspect of that luck. You must have spent a lot of time with your coach. Mm. Tell us about your key coaches in your life. Yeah, well, Dennis Cottrell. So he was kind of like another dad, really. So I had Dennis from the age of five until I was 26. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, over 20 years and then I came back for a year and, and had him as a coach again. So 
everything was structured around our performance and what we needed to do and training, even though we would travel the world constantly together, it was always on a professional basis. Um, and when, you know, nerves were high or things like that, we would just talk through it, but in a really logical way, not in a highly emotive sort of way. Um, it was just always about what we were trying to do together and to achieve and the common purpose that we shared. And whatever came through that disruption, whether it was through the adolescent years, whether it was through you know, becoming more well-known in the country and the challenges that then came with that, there was always something outside of the pool that we had to conquer together. So it was kind of like this relationship inside the pool, dealing with the pressures outside of the pool, and then focusing together on how we got to increase performance and, and drive things to the next level. He was as passionate about coaching as I was about swimming and winning. Hearing about the relationship between Grant and his coach, which is existing alongside the intense pressure Grant was putting himself under, within an environment of sacrifice and pain and trust, you can see how easily the coach-child relationship can turn sinister. We're not looking into that dark side of childhood sport in this episode, but it is a reality that needs to be confronted. After this quick break, we hear some surprising reflections from Grant. I always would put so much pressure on myself constantly and it's not necessarily a good mindset to stay in. You've got to be very careful because it can create stress, anxiety, you know, you sort of... Um, never happy for me I would overtrain because of that um, you know even when I was a little bit sick I'd be like I can't miss a session got to do everything right you know what I mean I was all about going I knew what it took in terms of preparation to do it and I would overdo that when my body wasn't necessarily ready to do it or it needed rest and I wasn't checking in properly so as much as almost that strength that probably it's a superpower for you it can be your absolute Achilles heel at the same time in the wrong environment I sit here today and I reflect on my career, on the things I lost, not what I gained. So I think I could have done more. I should have done this. I could have done that better. I maybe should, you know, that's then that that's still how I think today. And I think, you know, I've won probably 30 to 40 major inter, international titles across Olympics, Worlds and Commonwealth Games and Pampax. But that's not what I think about. I think about when I lost or I finished second and what I should have done differently. So then as a father of three children, and I'm not sure if they've inherited your sporting genes, but do you go, oh, well, the greatness in sport is not worth it if it's going to bring you unstuck in this other part of your life? I think it's worth it. Like, people would probably be shocked that I would actually say that, but I wouldn't change anything. You know, there are certain things in life, of course, you could have made better decisions. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not talking about things specifically i'm talking about the, the the bigger picture but would i change how i approach getting to olympics and all the experiences i had how enriched my life was how grateful i am i got the opportunity to do that the fact that i was six foot six and you know had sort of enough natural talent to be able to to meet those goals along with the attitude that i had towards it would i change that no if my kids want to do that go for it if they don't great means i don't have to get up early every morning to take the training <laughs> As if the road to becoming an elite athlete isn't challenging enough, evidently negotiating life after sport can be just as hard. I walk back out onto a busy Melbourne street. I watch the furrowed faces of office workers hurrying to make their way about their days. The people around me are oblivious that 
an Olympic champion is sitting 17 floors above them and that in another part of Melbourne, two gymnasts are giving it everything in the hope that one day they will achieve sporting greatness, just like thousands of other kids in dozens of other sports across the country who have made it their mission to reach the top. Every long-haul sports career has to come to a close, but when and how? In the series finale, guest host and recent AFL retiree David Asprey lets us inside his quest to find out more about transitioning into a life post-playing professionally. He speaks with swim great Dr Shane Gould, NRL's Clint Newton, softball's Janice Blackman and transitional expert Dr Deirdre Anderson. What he learns can apply to all of us, not just elite athletes. The Long Haul is a Headline Productions and Ranieri & Co podcast. Our host is Emma Murray. This episode was produced by Simon Portis and me, Liz Keane. Editing was by Simon Portis. And theme music was by Kenneth Lample. Special thanks to Nick Randall, Nick Murray, Grant Hackett, Robbie, Miela, Gabby and John Brown, John Hart, Oakley Recreation Centre and Mark Williams.